Good. Welcome, everybody. Good afternoon. Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, delighted to present the speaker uh, today, uh, Professor Jaime Akobi, who is a professor of uh, development planning at UCL. His research focuses on post-colonial architecture, planning and development in Israel-Palestine, the Middle East and Africa. Spatial justice and urban health, contested urbanism, transnational <coughs> migration and informality are in the core of his research and consultancy work, teaching and activism. He is currently studying the ways in which ideology, planning and health are entangled. And the title of his talk today is Israel, Africa, Identity, Culture, and Politics. Professor Jacobi, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for the invitation and thank you for coming here. Uh, my presentation today is very much based on my latest book that uh, was published two years ago. Uh, but, you know, I prepare myself for this uh, presentation and luckily there are enough political events in Israel that are very much linked to what I'm going to discuss today. So, <clears throat> let me see, it works, okay. On January 2011, the Israeli Knesset Committee for Immigration held a special meeting to discuss the impact of immigration on Israel's demographic balance. The discussion revolved around the origins of immigrants who had arrived to Israel over the past decade. One of the speakers warned the committee members of the danger of losing control over Israeli demography in view of the arrival of asylum seekers from various African countries. And I quote, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll cut the, the paragraph. Let me just say that right now there are 35,000 African migrants. They, make a special, they take a special taxi to El Arish and hire a guy to the Israeli border. Each of them pulls, pulls out a cell phone to make two calls, first to their contact in North Tel Aviv, and secondly to their friends in Somalia. This statement not only reveals the racializing discourse that was developed in Israel in relation to the flow of African asylum seekers, but also, unexpectedly, it exposes the denied geography of Israel, which borders not only with Middle Eastern countries, but also with Africa. Israel's denied geographies, denied geographies, geographies are at the core of my talk today. I intend to demonstrate that Israeli space is charged with various dimensions of Africa in Israel, as well as Israel in Africa. However, in spite of the analogies between the two territories, the geopolitical discourse ignores their linkages. Therefore, my main goal is to treat Africa as a conceptualizing principle underlying a new interpretation of the interrelations between space, culture, and society in Israel. A fresh look at the known cartography reveals an existing land bridge between Israel and Egypt via the Sinai Peninsula, which serves as a gateway to Africa. This passage between Israel and Africa is denied as part of the imaginative geography of Israel as a villa in the jungle, a well-known Hebrew expression that encapsulates the Israeli construction of identity and sense of place as being white, European-like, democratic, and enlightened. A villa 
that dominates a white and modern territory surrounded by walls and borders. My attempt is to focus on this bridge as a cultural, political, and spatial intersection in which Africa's presence is significant to the Israeli context. I would like to emphasize two main claims. First, that Africa was and still is an ingredient of the constant reshaping of Israel's self-identity as a decolonized Western project. Secondly, both the Israel in Africa and Africa in Israel perspectives are used as instruments for the demarcation of Israel's ethnic boundaries and for the reproduction of hierarchies of inclusion and exclusion, whitening and blackening. The ambivalent relationship between Israel and Africa encompasses various practices that I will discuss today, including planning, architecture, architecture, pilgrimage, settlement, demarcation and fortification of geopolitical, racial and identity-related boundaries. Africa is present in Israel in its history, demography and geography. One of the intersections that brought uh, the Zionist project in Africa together was a plan to establish a Jewish colony in East Africa, otherwise known as the Uganda Plan. While never realized, the plan offered Africa as an alternative to Zion, initially from territorial point of view, and later as a symbolically unthinkable option. Likewise, it is agreed that the East Africa plan was used as a tactical bargaining means or another step in Theodor Herzl's diplomatic efforts to legitimize the idea of Jewish nationalism. The East Africa proposal, as phrased uh, and designed by Lord Chamberlain, was based on colonial perception and cultural binaries that conjoined the Jews with the European colonizers, whose settlement in Africa would facilitate the region's colonization by white people. Many of the discussions within the Zionist movement concerning this plan accentuated the integral inclusion of the Jews within Western Europe, thus enhancing the binary division between black Africa and white Jews. Yet, this did not prevent an anti-Semitic reaction within Britain and among the white settlers in East Africa who objected to the Uganda plan since Jews were ranked as black. The white settlers of East Africa excels in cultivating dramatic images of a forthcoming Jewish invasion that would transform the region into a new Jewish ghetto. Nevertheless, the refugee colonialism strived to establish a state in a reverse mode. While imperialist states established colonies, the Jewish colonists established a state, as Elon noted. The plan emphasized the migration geopolitics that was the core of the Uganda debate, combining a people without land, as Zengaville uh, put it, only this time with a continent without people. After Uganda, Zionists would never again pursue philanthropic goals in general and vacant African territories in particular. East Africa, rather than being an actual plan, was a junction of ideas and identity formulations and would continue to be so after the establishment of the State of Israel. During the 60s and the beginning of the 70s, <coughs> Israel and Africa 
initiated various economic partnerships, such as the trade of arms, logistic and military equipment. African states became major consumers of Israeli weapon industry. Israel trained African soldiers and took part in the Cold War by assisting in the creation of intelligent networks in, in the, the uh, post-colonial African states. I would suggest that these issues will be viewed from a different perspective, striving to look beyond the instrumental logic of Israel involvement in Africa, namely the effort to create a barrier between African, the new African countries, states, and the Arab world. This is you know, the main explanation that you'll find in the literature about why Israel was intervening or um, you know, extensively intervening in Africa in the 60s. One of the main discourses concerning Israeli involvement in Africa during that period is the common fate of the exiled Jewish people returning to its land, recently relieved of the colonial burden, the British mandate, with the decolonized Afri African people. This was the main discourse that was very much uh, discussed. Based on extensive study of documents, I suggest that studies of Israel-Africa relations totally ignore the significance of, the, of Israeli involvement in Africa in the formation of Israel's own identity as a Western modern white state. From an analysis of the docu documents, I propose that the myth of uh, vacant space that Africa embodied as a reflection of aspirations became a guiding principle in the course of realizing the Zionist utopia. Israel's spatial model was formulated by architect Ariel Sharon, uh, Ariel Sharon's master plan that shaped the Israeli uh, uh, new colonial geographies after 48. The success of the Zionist uh, uh, territorial, territorialization project was one of the main catalysts of Israel-Africa relations during the 60s and 70s. During this period, Israel exported to decolonized African countries models that it used to effectively facilitate the settlement process within Israel, such as the kibbutz and the Nahal outposts. Nahal are uh, semi-military agricultural settlements. I will, will not be able to go uh, into details now. Uh, but while doing uh, research uh, in the Israel State Archive, I came across a collection of photos that depicted African youth in one of the pseudo-kibbutz agricultural farms that were established in various African countries. In the, in, during the 60s, that was part of the development aid that Israel exported to Africa. Surprisingly, I seem to recognize in the photos uh, familiar images from my own family album. The pioneer posture of youngsters uh, with harvested fields in the background, the soldierly appearance of African Nahal recruits, Israeli agriculture guides visiting Africa for African farmers, etc., etc. One of the photos that you can see behind me that drew my attention, attention featured a group of African women sitting by tables carrying sewing machines. The stance, the perspective, the objects, and the educational message of the photo strongly resembled those of my family album. Shortly afterward, I skimmed, I skimmed um, 
sorry. I skimmed through my parents' album, containing photos taken during the first two decades that followed their immigration to Israel. The album was packed full of pioneering photos. Youth dressed in uniform dancing in the fields, dark-skinned boys on the Sea of Galilee shore, and group of girls trekking in the Galilee. Suddenly, I found the familiar photo that resembled the one from the Israeli State Archive. The photo depicting girls of Aliyat Noar from Iraq, girls who immigrated uh, uh, from Iraq, learning to sew as part of the whitening process that they had to undergo in order to become Zionist, modern, and productive women. Yet, it was not just the visual similarity, but mainly the political and cultural identicalness of the two photos, one taken in Lesotho in 1972, and the other in Kibbutz Ginosar, in, in the north of Israel, two decades earlier. That made me realize the centrality of cultural aspects of the establishment and stabilization of Israel-Africa relations. Geostrategic considerations, taking part in the Cold War and making economical profits <coughs> were not the only factors that tied Israel and African countries together during the 60s but also analogical process of nationalism that produced knowledge and, specia and specialities based on the motivation to generate a modern national territory, identity, and society. Israel, as an architectural laboratory, provided the basis for the construction of residential, public, and cultural buildings for immigrants, immigrant communities, served as platform for Israeli architects and planners to perform considerable work in African countries. I'm talking about hundreds of architectural planning and development project, projects. I suggest that the expertise of Israeli architects who worked in Africa during the 60s and 70s stem from wider colonial knowledge networks and at the same time served as an additional tool to the imagination of African geography as well as the solidification of moral justification for intervening in African state. Space, sorry. As I have discussed in details elsewhere, the ideological dimension of planning and construction in Africa, and use the example, uh, and I would like to use the, the, the example of Solel Bonnet, an Israeli construction and civil engineering company, who, that illustrates how its projects in Africa were not merely economically pragmatic, but also a means of implementing Israel's foreign policy. Subsequently, Israeli architects whose professional biographies demonstrate my claim that Israeli architectural knowledge in Africa intervened with wide networks of colonial planning knowledge. The vision of Ariel Sharon, I've mentioned him before, the dominant architect during the first decade of the State of Israel was not only materialized, but also gained extensive exposure. Sharon's Nigerian project, the planning of Ife uh, University, here, I mean, you can see it, the Ife University campus, addressed two interrelated issues concerning the migration of colonial architectural knowledge. First, Sharon's planning methodology, mainly the utilization of a regional survey, a detailed document that examined the climate, the topography, the everyday life of the indigenous population. You can see 
you know, one page from his survey here. Uh, and the infrastructure, uh, 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 sorry, an indigenous popula population. Second, Sharon's climatic overview, we was obsessed with the issue of climate. Being, uh, a way, uh, uh, being part of the way in which modern, modernist school of architecture referred to climate, it was not just a programmatic ingredient in his planning, but also an instrument of hierarchical categorization of geography, culture, and development. Another example, the Mayer brothers had also viewed Africa as a planning and architectural arena. Their intensive involvement, mainly in the field of construction, started in 59. Their war coincided with Israel's political interest in the continent and was supported by the Minister of Finance, Levi Eshkol, and the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Golda Meir. This support was not merely symbolic or political. The State of Israel financially guaranteed the mayor's inter, uh, investment in Ivory Coast and even granted them direct loans. The Mayer brothers were private entrepreneurs. And this was a very interesting fact to discover that you know, the State of Israel gave loans to a private entrepreneur. They were not even Israelis, okay? Um, in this context, the work of Tommy Leitersdorf, the architect who was involved in the design of Ivory, of, of the Hotel Ivoire in uh, Côte d'Ivoire, that you can see here, uh, is very, very interesting uh, uh, in my view. Uh, Leitersdorf was studying at the AA, the Architectural Association School here in London. Or in London. Uh, he was married into the Mayer family and collaborated with them in Ivory Coast. What is very interesting is that Tommy Leitersdorf was studying at the AA, you know, that tropical architecture, and then he moved to work in Ivory Coast, and then he moved uh, back to Israel. There is a clear link between the state's interest and private capital interest, as well as the way in which the the exploitation of expertise is driven by a variety of economic, national security, and identity-related interests, and resulted in the development of white tourism in Ivory Coast. <clears throat> in Leitersdorf's case, the architect who planned the, 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 the Hotel Ivoire, the migration of architectural knowledge from London via Africa eventually landed in Israel in the early 70s when Tommy Leitersdorf exported his planning experience and ideas to another unexplored land, the occupied territories, where he planned Malea Dumim as well as some other settlements. Uh, I will not go into details, but it was very interesting to interview Tommy Leitersdorf about the similarities and the way in which his experience in Africa was relevant to planning new settlements uh, in the West Bank. Um, I just want to be sure. Yeah. Okay. It seems that the presence of black community in Israeli space became significant in the 1980s due to immigration from Ethiopia. The Ethiopian community in Israel uh, numbers around 200,000 uh, uh, people, most of whom were born in Eth Ethiopia, and their immigration to Israel was initiated by the state. Much has been written about the discrimination and racism against Ethiopian immigrants because of their skin color on the part of both the establishment and the public discourse. Their blood pu purity, 
hygiene and degree of Jewishness were, and still are, points of contention concerning their simultaneous exclusion from and inclusion in the Israeli ethno-national project. This situation is reflected in the socio-economic profile of the Ethiopian community in Israel, 70% of which are classified as being below the poverty line, and only 50% of Ethiopian children attend kindergarten as opposed to 95% of the general population. The Ethiopian community is concentrated in peripheral cities, both in Israel as a whole and in the Tel Aviv metropolis. These data are not coincidental. They are the consequence of a planning policy that serves as a mechanism of social control as attested by the master plan for the abs absorption of Ethiopian Jews, which restricts mortgage loans to those Ethiopians who choose to settle in specific locations. Furthermore, in 2010, certain streets in several cities were declared, and I quote, not open to grant recipients in order to prevent Ethiopian Jews from settling there. I would like to emphasize the manipulative exploitation of the segregation process involving the Ethiopian population in Israel. The first of this is the use of an institutional residential policy that aims to direct Ethiopian immigrants to frontier neighborhoods, such, such as the ones that accommodate Arab residents in order to control the demographic Jewish-Arab balance. One example is the Ramot Eshkol neighborhood in Lod, a Jewish-Arab mixed city, which was established as a Jewish neighborhood and during the last decade has gradually accumulated an Arab majority, the, the Ramot Eshkol neighborhood. The Ethiopian Jewish residents who compri comprise 29% of the neighborhood population, I think today it's much more, were intentionally settled there by the authorities in order to Judaize the neighborhood. Thus, Ethiopian immigrants eventually found themselves whitening the neighborhood on one hand and blackening the city on the other. A second and simultaneous motivation was the public clamor for the disp uh, dispersion of Ethiopian Jews in order to prevent the creation of a racial and class-oriented ghetto, such as the Kiryat Moshe neighborhood in Rehovot, also known as Harlem in the Israeli public uh, uh, discourse. Ethiopian immigrants, as representatives of Africa in Israel, serve as, pre serve as a prevalent subject for sociological, political, and spatial research. However, the fact that North African immigrants arrived to Israel as early as the 50s is commonly ignored in this context. The literature and discourse regarding North African immigrants often associate them with other Mizrahim, Oriental Jews, and with the experience of being an Oriental Jew, albeit with a special connection with North Africa as a distinct cultural unit. During the period of Israel's involvement in Africa, North Africa, and it was exactly the same years that North Africa became one of the most significant sources of immigration to Israel. But while Israel in Africa realized its policy and familiarized the Israeli public with the continent, North Africa in Israel became a demographic fact that required special treatment. 
North African immigration to Israel as a material culture and social fabric was subjected to amendment by means of spatial policy, among other measures. The moral geography of Africa in Israel was required through the new Zionist space to present a normative, well-organized daily life. There was an attempt to disconnect from North Africa, to turn its back on it, and at the same time to transform the other into one of us. Thus, Africa, or North Africa, became a source of demographic supply, which was supposed to exclude the backward diaspora-like home on the one hand and create a new national and personal home on the other. The discussion on Israel's black geographies has gained momentum in the early 90s when African migrant workers became a daily element in the creation of an informal space in Tel Aviv. This includes not only the mere presence of African migrant workers, but also the economical, cultural, and social exchange the presence produces, small businesses, religious and cultural institutions, and community organizations. Galia Tzabaru will be here in a few weeks time, or next week already, uh, discusses the diaspora-natured existence of African migrant workers, exposes the creation of hidden sites in Tel Aviv, follows the mobility of the black foreigner around the city and the metro metropolis. Importantly, Tzabaru demonstrates through their biographies, the way African migrant workers attempt to construct the common destiny and the common experience of the African and Jewish diasporas. This is a, a theme that was very much present uh, uh, among uh, uh, the African uh, workers. African asylum seekers who arrived to Israel in recent years, in recent years mark a turn in the political discourse which trapped between an ethnocentric ideology and a commitment to universal human rights. As I discussed elsewhere, there were two main interrelated courses of Africa in Israel in this case. The first refers to the shifts in the Israeli authorities' policy regarding African asylum seekers, sorry, regarding African asylum seekers, a policy that conjoins surveillance practices, deportation, confinement, and dispersion as means of intimidation, and the known policy of abandonment along with a violation of the state's commitment to assist asylum seekers under the obligation of international treaties. The second focuses on the way in which, on the way, sorry, this policy is linked to the geographical imagination of Africa by Israel, which serves as a foundation to the racialization of Israeli urban space. Indeed, the reimagination of the, of the mythological African jungle that I've mentioned at the beginning is revived in the Israeli urban space among formal ballrooms transformed into ad hoc churches. Condensed dormitories provided by refugee aid organizations, parks that served as asylum seekers' home, as well as small business run by refugee refugees that compromise that com that comprise a social network of Africa in Israel. 
The arrival of asylum seekers to Israel via the Egyptian border redirects the discussion to the geopolitical level, in which the villa in the jungle is required to fortify and maintain the border in order to maintain, to maintain the separation between here and there. The initiative and the discourse about the fortified border are by no means coincidental. Discursively, it is linked to technologies used by Israel over the past few years in order to control the border, namely the demand to build an intelligent fence, as you can see here, between Israel and Egypt, is inseparable from our geopolitically significant event which took, which took place during the summer of 2002. The first is the establishment of the immigration administration that aims to prevent foreign workers from entering Israel and to deport those who work without permit. The second is the construction of the separation barrier between Israel and the West Bank. <clears throat> the demographic and geopolitical fortification of Israel provides the basis for a lively discussion on the resemblance and the differences between Israel and South Africa. This brings to mind one of the most controversial questions regarding politics and space in Israel. Is Israel marching towards an apartheid policy? This continuous debate also echoes the shifts in the relation between Israel and South Africa from the condemn condemnation of the South African apartheid regime when Israel strengthened its ties with other African countries until the cooperation with the apartheid regime after the 1973 war, when most African countries served their relations with Israel. Severe, sorry, severed their relations with Israel. The way Israel-Africa relations have come full circle and are currently founded on a synthesis of agricultural aid and arms trade, which constitute a major part of the Israeli experience, as Neil Gordon uh, coined it. Its existence is due to three main interrelated reasons. The first is Israel's hyper-militaristic character. The second is the neoliberal agenda that opens channels to promoting the interest of private capital. And the third is the Israeli self-perception and reputation of being a democracy that operates in accordance with moral ethics. These three reasons have turned the Israeli experience into the new object of desire for African countries. As you can see here, now, you know, the very uh, well-covered visit of the previous Minister of Foreign Affairs, Avigdor uh, uh, Lieberman in Africa. It was exposed very much in the Israeli media. But basically, if you look at the people who accompanied him, these were representatives of uh, Israeli companies that produce you know, different uh, military technologies, etc., etc. So these three reasons have turned the Israeli experience into the new object of desire for African countries, and they help create an economic bridge encouraged by Israel's foreign policy on the one hand and the interest of private capital on the other. And I think this is a very interesting uh, marriage, if you want, between private interest and state interest. <clears throat> Today, uh, I try to demonstrate how the Israel, an Israeli project rooted within a specific settler context that does not fit into the common historical, political, and geographical frameworks is not 
only an inner mechanism of territoriality. Rather, it is a central component in the design of moral geography that shapes its foreign policies. You could see how the relation between what happened within Israel after 48 was very valuable to its relations with Africa, Af the new African state in the 60s. Here, the Israeli project of internal geopolitical whitening, i.e. modernization and Judaization, is the platform for its external whitening in the international sphere, i.e. Israel as a Western giver motivated by moral mission of aid. The presence of Africa in Israel is further accentuated in the case of African asylum seekers who have immigrated to Israel during the last few years. Here, I suggest that the function of the geopolitical border coincides with the body of knowledge that highlights the centrality of the discourses and practices aimed at controlling contact between the black body and the white body as, as uh, racializing, racialization of minority. It is clearly reflected in the way in which racialization preaches for the purification of the social body and the protection of the collective identity against any external penetration. Through this perspective, one may point to other patterns of racism that are formatted and organized around sociolo sociological signifiers such as poverty, gender, and illegality, which is very relevant to the African asylum seekers, that replace biological markings, namely the color of their skin. Today, I also highlighted the actual and the analogical link between Africa and Israel. Treating Africa as a geopolitical and cultural concept, which allows a renewed observation of territory and identity in Israel. As I demonstrated, familiar spatial and social categories such as Mizrahim, refugees, Nahal outposts, Israeli architecture, development aid, or modern space are constructed here by means of or in contrast to there. Utilizing moral discourse and expert practices invested in knowledge power relationship relations. Despite, despite cases which demonstrate the relevance of the discussion on Africa, expressions like this is not Africa, this is from a demonstration, Africa Lokan. This is the name of my book in Hebrew, Kanlo Africa. Uh, so the expression like, this is not Africa, are routinely articulated in Hebrew when the speaker wishes to position Israel on the Western, progressive, and white section of the world, of the world geopolitical and cognitive map. This is not Africa epitomizes the moral geographies of Israel in Africa. Israel is here, while Africa is there. The boundary between here and Africa is negatively marked by not. The negation of the black, the underdeveloped, who validates here by way of mirroring. Thank you. <laughs>